Deuteronomy 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 15. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. So far from Deuteronomy 6, let's also go to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 45. Here Isaiah is speaking in a time after the people of Israel had forgotten God, as they were warned not to do in Deuteronomy 6. And we'll pick up at Isaiah 45, verse 18, and we'll read through verse 25. Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. 
Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So far, the word of God. Let's sing together from Psalm 90. Stands afternoon service. We turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian doctrine. We find ourselves we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 34. And Lord's Day 34 is the introduction to the law of God. The first question in Lord's Day 34, it's on page 550 of your books of praise, asks, what is the law of the Lord? And it there lists the Ten Commandments, which you heard this morning. Question answer 93 then asks, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. Then the next question What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the very sake, for for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this week we're beginning our study of the law of God. And as we do this, we want to keep very firmly in mind the purpose that we looked at last week when we introduced this study. And that's namely this, God does not give us His law in order to stand over us in judgment, but rather so that we can know how to live in His grace. The point that, that was the point of the preface to the law where God says, I am the Lord your God who has set you free from bondage and then follows the Ten Commandments. And here's then where the first commandment immediately begins. The first commandment is all about our relationship with God. It's so simple and yet it deals with the most important part of our lives, the most important issue in your life that shapes everything else that you do. He says, very simply, 
You shall have no other gods but me. Now there's a reason this commandment comes first, because this is the most important issue in your life, and every other commandment hangs on this one. Everything else that you know and believe and do follows from the question, who is your God? Another way to ask the same question is to ask, why do you exist? What do you exist for? What has God, if you believe God has created you, what has God created you for? I've asked the catechism students this before. I think now they, they know the correct answer and could probably repeat it verbatim. But, but when I get new catechism students, I love to ask this. What do you exist for? Uh, they say, God created me. Okay, what did God create you for? And the most common answer that I'll get is to serve Him. It's a good answer. God created us to serve Him. That, that's true. But let's press the question further, because there's a wrong way of, of understanding that. Okay, God made us to serve Him. What does that service look like? What kind of service does God require of us? Well, a smart student might say, well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. God gave those, and he, that's what He requires us to do. And, and that's true. That's, that's correct. But now let me press the question even further. What do those commandments teach us? And what's the heart of the Ten Commandments? That service that God requires of you, if you can boil it down to one single fundamental purpose in your life, what is it? Well, a really smart student might say, well, the Lord Jesus told us. He said, you can summarize the Ten Commandments by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, now we're getting somewhere. You're right, the Lord Jesus said that that is the greatest commandment. And you could say that's the heart of the commandments. And did you notice that's essentially the same thing as the very first commandment. The first commandment is, You shall have no other gods but Me. And the Lord Jesus interprets that as, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means for Him to be your God. Well, brothers and sisters, you need to know you weren't just created to serve God. That's what pagan gods exist for. They exist to be served The Lord says, Psalm 50, The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I didn't make you in order to give me cattle or to render any other service except, in the first place, the service of love. In other words, God created us to know Him, to love Him, and to live with Him forever for His glory and for your joy. Say it again. God created us to know Him, to love Him, and to live with Him for His glory and for your joy. That is what this commandment is all about. And it's the foundation of everything else that we look at in the next weeks. You can see this also in in our own confessions. In Lord's Day 3, it asks about what was our condition when God created us? What were we uh, created to be like? And it says... Mankind was made in true righteousness and holiness for this purpose, so that he might rightly know God his Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal blessedness 
to praise Him and glorify Him. Our, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters have a similar thing in, in their confessions. The very first question of the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what do we exist for? And the answer that they give, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I would argue that's saying fundamentally the same thing as Lord's Day 3. God made us to know Him, love Him, and live with Him. That's enjoying Him forever. And when you do that, when you do that well, you will glorify Him. So you could even say, to to paraphrase the, the Westminster Confession, God created us to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. When we enjoy Him, we are by that very fact glorifying Him. To glorify simply means to to make something glorious or to show it to be glorious. In the case of the Lord, we don't make Him glorious. He already is glorious. But we show Him to be glorious beginning in our own hearts when we are enjoying Him. The way that we glorify God, the most fundamental way, is by knowing Him, loving Him, and living with Him. And so that's the very reason for which you were made. Not to serve Him simply with your works, as if you were slaves to a divine slave owner or or robots in a divine factory. But no, you were made as people to know your God, to love Him, and to live with Him, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you want it in in really short Twitter-sized Uh, format, it's this, God made you for relationship with Himself. That's what it means to know God, love Him, and live with Him forever. It's for relationship. And that is the very reason that you and I exist, to enjoy full, deep, sweet fellowship with the Lord our God. That's how He manifests His glory, by creating people that are able to enjoy relationship with Him. And that's what this first commandment then is all about. It's what we were made for. And when God gave this commandment to Israel, He wanted them to know, that's also what I saved you for. I didn't just create you to enjoy relationship with me, but once you fell away from me, when you fell into bondage, I now delivered you so that once again, you can enjoy relationship with me. And the very same is true for us, who have been bought with the blood of Christ. Why did God save us? So that we would know Him, love Him, and live with Him again. Now we read from Isaiah 45, and I want you to see it there as well. Uh, The prophet Isaiah was sent to the people of God, Yeah, to the people of God, the people of Israel, to call them back to Himself after they had forgotten Him and gone off to worship other gods. We saw in Deuteronomy 6, the most fundamental commandment was right there. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then He also says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall not forget the Lord your God. Same idea as the first commandment. No other gods but God. But they did. And so Isaiah was sent to call them back, 
to God. And it makes Isaiah a very heavy book because it's filled with warnings of uh, impending doom and, and judgment. But in, in the middle of all of those warnings, there are promises of God's grace. The suffering was meant to bring them back to Him. And when they return, the promise is that they will discover once again His grace. And so the, the, the fundamental message of Isaiah's entire ministry is God calling out to His people, would you but return to Me? And so God essentially has to introduce Himself over again to His people after they'd forgotten Him. And you see that in verse 18. Uh, he says, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, in parentheses, He is God, in case you forgot, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. It's God's message through Isaiah. You need to know me again. So he introduces himself over. And, and the message is clear. God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know him. That's why God goes through all this trouble to discipline Israel and to send a prophet after Israel because they need to know him. He says in the next verse, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. In other words, God has not been hiding himself from us. It's true of Israel and it's true for, for all human beings. God does not hide himself from us. Some of us still think that way, that God created the world and then left it far away at, at, arm's, ring, at, at arm's reach so that no, even if people look for him, they won't be able to find him. Well, brothers and sisters, that is not God's character. He did not create us in order for us to strive after Him, to find Him, and, and He didn't then make sure that we never would. That is not who God is. And, and you can see that right from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates human beings. Verse 27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God spoke to them, the very next things that God does. He creates us, He blesses us, He speaks to us. God does not make it difficult for us to find Him. And so we need to know God not only made you to know Him, He wants you to know Him, and it's the most fundamental thing for which you exist, to know your God. Every one of us needs to know this. And when you get this, it pays a thousand dividends in your life because it answers all of life's other questions. It orients everything into its proper relationship. First, I must know my God. And then everything else follows from that. It's as uh, the, the church father, St. Augustine, said in his confessions, he says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you don't know your God, you will fill your life with all sorts of replacements for Him that will never satisfy what you were made to know and love, which is, he, which is God Himself. So God's made us to know Him. Second, God reveals Himself as a God who is lovely, so that as we know Him, we would also love Him. In verses 20 and 21, you can see this in 
Isaiah 45, he speaks to the nations out there who are busy serving wooden idols, and he calls them to recognize that those gods are powerless. There's nothing lovely about them. There's nothing desirable about those gods. And he says in verse 21, Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. He reveals himself as a God who is worthy of our love. So God's purpose is not only that you would know him, but that also as you know him, you would love him. He gives two reasons just here in our our text uh, why we should love him. Number one, that he is a righteous God. And number two, that he is a savior. We need to recognize both of those are reasons to treasure and delight in our God. It is a gift that God is righteous, especially in a world that is so unrighteous. You can appreciate this if you think about uh, the other gods that people were worshiping in that day who were not at all portrayed as righteous. They would bicker, they would fight, they would uh, cheat on each other, uh, they would be malicious, cruel, capricious, unpredictable, sometimes lashing out without warning. And that was the, the character of those gods that, these, that the people of Israel were tempted to serve. Well, God says, I'm a righteous God. It's a reason to love Him. He loves justice. He never changes. In an unrighteous and unjust and ungodly world, God's righteousness is the most precious thing that we have to be able to hold on to. We have a God who is good and who will never, ever change, no matter what this world becomes. And God tells His people also, I am a Savior. He rescues them. He delivers them. It's the same thing at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, how he introduces himself. I'm the Lord your God who's delivered you from the land of Egypt. Uh, He desires to save, not to punish. Uh, He says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he would turn from his way and live. And that's the very reason God sent Christ also into the world, to save sinners who were destined for death and hell. He lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose again to give us new life in order to save us. Uh, That's God's very nature. He's a Savior, and He reveals that so that as we come to know Him as a Savior, we would come to love Him and to treasure Him as our Savior. And so he says again in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Well, this is a a call to all the ends of the earth. And so it includes also us. It includes any guests who might be also in our midst. God is crying out, Turn to me and be saved. And so God's desire is that we would know Him, that we would love Him, and that the more we know Him and love Him, we would treasure Him, delight in Him, and enjoy life with Him in fellowship and relationship with Him. That's the reason you and I exist. And that's what it means then to to glorify God. We confess that God has made made us uh, above, above everything else for His glory. 
And what that means is that God created us to know Him, to love Him, and as we do that, as we know Him and love Him, by that action, we will thereby glorify Him. We honor Him. We esteem Him most highly. So it means to, to glorify. And that's what the first commandment then is all about. God says, have no other gods but Me. In other words, nothing and no one gets to take the place of God in our lives. Nothing can be His substitute. Now, before dealing with uh, some of the practical implications of that, which we will do, let me first answer two very common objections to, to this God. And they're very related to each other. The first is, isn't God an egomaniac for demanding exclusive worship? Isn't that what egomaniacs do? And the second question is, how can such a God demand, who demands exclusive worship be loving? Is He really loving if He's doing everything for His glory and if He refuses to share that glory with anything else? Well, is God an egomaniac for demanding our exclusive worship? We know if anyone else did this, if anyone else demanded that we worship them and, and no one and nothing else, we would say that person has a major problem with, with their ego. And we would be right to, to make that judgment. The difference, though, is they are not God. If someone who is not God demands to take the place of God in our lives, they would be an egomaniac. That would be grossly inappropriate. But for God to demand to be God is entirely appropriate. He is God. He deserves that place. Well, God is jealous for the honor that He rightly deserves. And He's right to be jealous for it because He deserves it. To, to give a simple example... If one of us accomplishes something difficult, let's say in the workplace, uh, you accomplish a task that uh, perhaps your boss didn't expect you to be able to do, it would be reasonable for us to expect to be given credit for what we've accomplished. We all, we all get that. You deserve credit for the things you accomplish. And it, it would be wrong if the boss then went and said, look what I did. We all get that. He's, he's stealing your credit. It's wrong. And you might say, whatever, let him have it. But you know, we all know, that's wrong. Well, that's true on a, on a very limited, finite scale. It was, a, it was one accomplishment. It's infinitely true of God. For one thing, He's our Creator. He gives us our every breath. He gives us our every heartbeat. He causes the billions of cells in our bodies to be functioning as they should with all of their complexities and intricacies. And He deserves the credit for that. But beyond even that, He's infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely righteous, and He deserves the honor in proportion to who He is. God is no egomaniac for demanding exclusive worship, God demands it because He is infinitely worthy of it. He's not demanding to be honored above and beyond what He's worth. He's demanding to be honored in accordance with what He is worth and who He is, as we ourselves also do on our finite small scale. 
Well, and Scripture is very clear about this. God does all that He does for His honor and glory. The display of His own glory is God's highest good in all that He does. It's the, the most worthy cause that can ever be served for God to manifest His own glory. To give honor to whom honor is due. Love to that which is lovely. To treasure that which is valuable. To delight in that which is good is always the right thing. It's always a good thing. And God is infinitely valuable, uh, righteous, good, and, and delightful. And so He, very rightly then, does all that He does for the honor of which He is due. Which brings us then to, to the second objection. Maybe all that's true of God. Maybe He is worthy of infinite worship and He's right to pursue that. But how can such a God be loving? If He loves Himself as the highest good, how is He still loving towards us? Is it loving for God to pursue His own glory as His highest aim in all that He does? Is it, even if it's fair for Him, is it loving well, to answer that, look at the final verse in Isaiah uh, 45, or the final verse that we read, uh, verse 24. He says through Isaiah, Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God's purpose is that His people would glory in Him. It's a strange use of the word glory. But it means to find their joy in His glory. That's what it means to glory in something. It certainly implies that that thing should be recognized as glorious, but it also implies that my joy is in its glory. When I glory in my wife, for example, as all husbands ought to do, one thing I am doing is holding her up as glorious, as I should. But there's something more in that phrase, to glory in. It also implies her glory is my delight. I love her glory. That's what it means to glory in something. It's saying, she is glorious and I am privileged to be her husband. That's what it means to glory in my wife. Well, here God is saying, In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He is our God, and we are privileged and joyful to be His people. So take this back then uh, to, to that verse. God's purpose here is clearly His glory. Right? That's the ultimate goal. He will make His glory known, and He is right to do so. But God's purpose is that His glory would also be our joy. And that's true right since the day of creation. That's what God created us for. Not only to know Him, but also to love Him. And to love means to find joy in Him. That's what it means to love. When I love someone, they are my joy. And so it is with God and how He has created us. He has made us to glory in Him. There's nothing that can give us greater joy or fulfillment than a relationship with God, our Creator. 
because that is the very thing for which we were created. And that's the point of this whole chapter then. God calls us to worship Him because there is no other God and there is nothing else that is worth being worshipped. There's nothing else that if we were to worship it could give us greater joy or satisfaction than God Himself. In other words, God's pursuit of His own glory is the greatest good that He could ever pursue for us. His purpose is that you would glory in Him. That you would delight in Him. Or to say it another way, God is most glorified in us when we most rejoice in Him. Well, that's what this commandment then is all about. That intimate relationship between those two realities. You shall have no other God but me means that the most, the, the best most ultimate thing for which we were created, which is the best for us, is to have no other God but God. Having said that, then, let's look at some implications for our own lives. To have another God is to have anything or anyone who takes the place in our lives that belongs to God alone. Which is to say, the person or thing to which we commit our life above everything else. Now understand, this does not only mean other gods like Baal or Molech or, or Krishna or Allah that, that go by other names and are recognized as gods. The Lord Jesus also spoke about the god Mammon, which was the Aramaic word for, for money. And nobody actually worshipped that god. They didn't worship a god named Mammon. But Jesus' point was, many people do worship that thing. And it is to them a God. And that would have included also then people who who claim to worship the God of the Bible, and yet in fact were choosing something else, worshiping something else. And so the question is, who or what do you love above everything else? Or let, let me put it another way. What can't you be happy unless you have? What can't you have joy unless you have? That is your God. It might be a job. It might be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It might be a house. It might be some other possession. It might be your pride. It might be something else. If that is what you glory in, in other words, what you treasure above everything else, then that is your God. If that's what you pursue as the most valuable thing in your life, that is your God. The psalmist says in in Psalm 73, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. That is the meaning of worship. That's the heart of this commandment. David David says it this way in Psalm 63. He says, Your steadfast love is better than life itself. And so the Catechism defines idolatry in terms of love and trust. It's having or inventing something in which to put our trust in instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. And so here's where it becomes 
very practical. Does our, does our bank account give us greater comfort than God, than God's love? Do our, do our personal relationships give us more fulfillment than our relationship with God? Now, I'm not saying they cannot give us fulfillment. God made us that way to have relationship with each other. I mean, we, we need that. But if we were to sooner give up our nearness to God than to give up our relationship with others, then they have become our God. Does having fun matter more to you than knowing, loving, and living with your God? Does the respect or approval of others mean more to you than the approval of God? Does your pride matter to you more than God's honor? That too would be idolatry. And I recognize all of these are, are searching questions. And I know that none of us can, if we're thinking through these, can answer them honestly without acknowledging some, some guilt. Uh, we have placed things in our lives higher than God. There are areas in which we are guilty of letting idols into our hearts. And that's exactly why we're doing this series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we, we're going to experience this with every one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they, they cause us to search our hearts, and when we do that, they should lead us to the cross of Christ. So we recognize we are idolaters, and that is precisely why God has sent the Lord Jesus to save us, to die for our sins, and to render the obedience that we haven't rendered to God. Well, let's also remember, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that God also gave us this law in order to help us live as a free people, having been set free by Him. See, to put our hope in our bank account or in our relationship with others or in, in having fun or, or any of those things is to become enslaved to things that cannot ultimately satisfy it's to go back, having God, God having set us free, it's to go right back into slavery. None of those things will ever give us the true, deep, lasting joy that God has made us to find in, he, in Him Himself. And so we can, we can chase those things our entire life long, but it would be to enslave ourselves again. When God commands us to have no other gods but Him he tells us this, He commands us this, so that we would live as a freed people, doing what we were made to do, living as we were made to live. True freedom is knowing what you were made for and being able to live that fully. And we were made to know Him, to enjoy His steadfast love, and to love Him in return with all our heart. God has made you for Himself and to substitute Anything else for Him is to substitute light for darkness. To substitute God's profound glory for empty, meaningless pleasure and wind. It's to violate the most fundamental thing for which you were created, which is to know Him and love Him. And so, God doesn't only give this commandment for His glory. He also gives this commandment for our joy. And He holds the two of those together. We have joy when we glorify Him as we ought. Well, in this commandment, God is not teaching us 
that we cannot love anything else or that we cannot love any other people at all. Of course we can. God has made us also to love our families, to enjoy our work, to delight in our children, also to take pleasure in in our hobbies. The point is not that we, we can't love those things at all, but instead God teaches us to see those things as gifts through which we even more fully enjoy and love Him. They are to be received, as, as uh, 1 Timothy 4 says, to be received with thanksgiving. Paul says, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is, to be, if it is received with thanksgiving. And so we don't worship those things. We worship God as we enjoy those things. Those things are a means to our more fully knowing, loving, and living with God. Well, the Catechism mentions a number of specific violations of this commandment that I haven't dealt with. Witchcraft, superstition, prayer to saints. What all of these have in common is an, is an inability or unwillingness to live in relationship with God. That's why people involve themselves in witchcraft. That's why people become superstitious. That's why people pray to saints, because that is a substitute for a relationship with God. Now, Roman Catholics would obviously object to, to prayer to saints being on this list. They would say, that's, that's not idolatry. But the fact is that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray our Father as an expression of that most fundamental relationship directly with Him. And you see that, of course, in, in almost all of the Psalms. They are prayers to God, not ever to, to other saints. Uh, and so the question remains, number one, why would we assume that saints have the power to hear our prayers? Scripture doesn't teach that. And secondly, more importantly, the deeper question is, even assuming that they had that ability, why would we choose to pray to them instead of to God? That's why the Catechism puts prayer to saints on this list, because when we choose another access, another route to God, there's something broken in that relationship with God that God intends us to have. And so, brothers and sisters, hear then the call in this commandment. God again says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. If you hear this commandment and you recognize, as you should, that there are things to repent of, to confess, then do repent of them, confess them before God, and turn again to your Savior, because He calls us so that He may save us. Every one of us is guilty, but Christ has paid the price for our guilt. And so, turn to Him, repent. That's the call of the Gospel, and it's the call also of the first commandment. And then, having been saved, begin to live as a free man or woman or child. Draw near to God. Come near to Him, and He promises He will also draw near to you. Let Him give you the love, joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment that God alone can give, because your heart was also made for Him. Amen. Let's respond by singing.